What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. The Deep Trouble podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at troublemag.com. Thanks for listening. All right, we're back in the studios of 94.9 Main FM. It's time for another episode of Deep Trouble. I'm Steve Charman, and once again, I have Dr. Mark Halloran with me. How are you going, Mark? I'm very well, Steve. Good to hear. Well, we've got a couple of very interesting interviews for you in the next two weeks. Some people will say they're quite contentious. Well, I guess that's the whole point of the series. I think that one of the things that distinguishes Deep Trouble is our willingness to approach any subject with an open mind. I think that I'm aiming for a radical centre. (laughs) I don't know. I'd like to think that we try to present both sides of an argument Mm. because it's through being exposed to the different arguments and having to wrestle with different arguments that you gain a, a more accurate sense of who you are. Yes, yes. I think it's very, very easy to slip into groupthink and to be motivated by your group. And even people who are intellectuals, you know, whether you're talking about Jordan Peterson or you're talking about Noam Chomsky, they are very much guided by their group and don't always invite conversations that are outside of that that are non-combative. It's quite possible to pick and choose arguments uh, from people on the different sides of the divide, I think. And I'd hope that our listeners over the next two weeks will be able to pick through the arguments of your interviewees Mm. and adopt maybe some of the positions, even if they don't believe in everything they're hearing. Well, you'd hope so. You'd hope people have the ability to change their point of view based upon evidence. Yeah. Okay. The first of these interviews is with Professor Gigi Foster. It's an interesting first name. You don't often hear of many Gigi's in Australia, and she's not yet. Yes, exactly, as you will hear with an American accent. Gigi Foster is a professor with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She was formally educated at Yale University and the University of Maryland. She works in diverse fields, including education, social influence, corruption, lab experiments, time use, behavioural economics and Australian policy. She is one of Australia's leading economics communicators, and she has regular media appearances, which include co-hosting The Economists, which is a national economics talk radio program and podcast series, now in its fourth season, with Peter Martin on ABC Radio National. So Gigi is going to be expressing her opinion about the coronavirus situation we have, COVID-19 situation, and from an economist's perspective, your interview with Gigi was done a few weeks ago, just before the big spike in Victorian cases. You don't refer to that, and it may well have influenced some of your conversation if that had happened before your conversation. One thing that Gigi does talk about at the very start of the interview are statistical lies and quality-adjusted life years. And to me, that seems to be at the very heart of her argument. 
these terms. That is mm. that she's putting a value on lives. And what she's mm. saying is that you weigh lives in a balance. You weigh mm. the lives that are lost immediately through deaths mm. and then you weigh that against lives that are lost in other ways and the damage to lives that a lockdown and severe economic effects can create. As she says, she'll be making a very different argument in relation to lockdowns and things like that if COVID-19 was very similar to the Spanish influenza, which predominantly affected 20 to 40-year-olds because the statistical value of a 20 to 40-year-old's life is different to the value of a 70-year-old's life from the point of view of an economist. So it's essentially an extremely pragmatic view, I suppose. It's a very pragmatic view. Be prepared. Feel free to disagree. So what about we hear the interview, Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with Professor Gigi Foster. I'm Professor Foster. Thanks very much for agreeing to the interview. You've become almost infamous, I suppose, for a panel that you participated in for a Q&A where you stated that the lockdowns for COVID-19 and the closure of international borders were a mistake and led to greater deaths. And I thought that economists tend to think of life differently to other people. You know, you spoke about statistical lives and uh, quality adjusted life years. I just wanted you to expand on what you meant by that. Sure. So in economics, we typically uh, make many decisions in normal times that uh, require us to have a currency in which to value human welfare. And these situations arise because resources are scarce and we have to choose, even though it's heart-wrenching to do so, how to allocate those scarce resources across competing priorities, some of which do involve, many of which do involve human welfare. So a couple of currencies that are in common use are the value of a statistical life and the quality adjusted life year. The first of these, the value of a statistical life, is used often in environmental regulation setting and sometimes in traffic and infrastructure decisions where we need to make a decision. Let's say in traffic, we need to decide what is the speed limit going to be on this road. And we know that setting any given speed limit is going to produce some level of death. We could have speed limits of one kilometer per hour on all of our roads, but that's just not something that people would accept. So we we are willing to accept some level of deaths in return for the benefit of having reasonably efficient transport. And so when we make those decisions, we take into account the value of a statistical life, which is usually set to be somewhere between four and ten million dollars. And that figure comes actually from real people's choices in terms of, for example, the premia that they pay for life insurance policies or how much extra they ask for in their wages in order to take on a job which has an additional amount of danger, like window cleaners really high up on a skyscraper or being a stuntman. These sorts of jobs have additional danger embedded in them, which means an additional risk of death for every year that you perform that job. So from figuring out how much people are willing to pay for taking on that risk, we can work out what their sort of implicit value of their own life is. And so the value of a statistical life comes from that empirical evidence in, in terms of people's choices. So that's one currency. The second currency is the quality adjusted life year. 
And this is one which is used often in medical decision-making, health economics. And essentially, it's a, a year type of currency rather than a life type of currency. So it enables you to, to value, for example, the remaining life left of a 20-year-old differently than the remaining life left of an 80-year-old. And a perfect quality year would have this value of one. And then when you go down uh, you know, further from that, so you have pain or suffering, you have disablement, then there's a, a lower value. And again, based on the decisions people actually make, we can put a value on that quality adjusted life year. And typically that's somewhere around 50 to $150,000. So those are the currencies that are in most common use in normal times when we're making policy decisions in health economics or in other kinds of policy arenas, including outside economics and engineering and, and other risky sorts of um, decision making. Mm. So basically, when I look at the COVID-19 crisis, my, my thought is, well, what are the costs and benefits of the policies that we have on the table as options? And let's denominate those in terms of one of these standard currencies. And of yes. course, it's not just lives saved or quality adjusted life years saved that could have otherwise been taken by COVID-19 or its after effects or its symptoms, but also all of the other lives saved and, and quality adjusted life years saved from not implementing certain kinds of restrictions such as the lockdown. So the lockdown and, and many of the other policies that we've seen around the world, not just in Australia, have carried costs that can be denominated in the same currency, that is human welfare, lives and quality adjusted life years, as we look at in those tables and graphs of COVID-19 deaths. Well, in terms of COVID-19 and the modelling, when we're looking at a critical fatality rate, of, it's varied somewhere between 0.66 to 1.4%, including asymptomatic cases. And the projections here are around sort of letting it go, not having the strict lockdowns, keeping international borders open, with somewhere between 50 to 150,000 deaths. That's very concrete. In terms of hypothetical models, though, when you're trying to calculate the effect of a life for a life in terms of the effect of the lockdown itself, in terms of lives, are you able to make the same projections? Well, I would first quibble with the notion that somehow that number that you just cited or, or a set of numbers, 100, yes. 150,000 was the max, is actually you know, concrete in the sense of being certain. It mm. is itself the output of a model. It is not something that has been observed. Indeed, it has, that never came to pass. And in fact, if we look around the world now, the countries in which this thing has hit worst, if you take their per capita death rates and apply them to Australia, we would not have, even under any policy setting that has been seen around the world, we would not have had more than 20,000 deaths. Mm. So th those initial models, which is what they were, models, yes. not empirical data, but models, they were out by an order of magnitude. And the modeling that would be required to be brought to the table together with the epidemiological models is more of a holistic, whole of society type model yes. of the types of consequences of the, the radical economic policy settings that we were considering at the time. My concern yes. is that really there was only one camp driving the policy decisions, and that was the epidemiological camp. And I believe that that narrow focus was uh, mainly a function of fear, of hysteria. People yes. were locked onto this COVID-19 thing and they just could not see anything else. I didn't mean concrete in the terms of that it's empirically proven. I meant that, that it was a model that was able to offer a death rate. And when I'm listening to what you're saying, I don't hear the model that's offering a comparable death rate to, which may not be possible in terms of, you know, if you think about the economic effect we're facing 
the first recession that we've had in 29 years and in the March quarter, the GDP shrank by about 0.3%. What are the ramifications on the public health system going into the future? What are the ramifications for the entire country? Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right that those models giving death projections from COVID-19 are easy to understand and they produce Mm. these specific numbers because they are so narrow, Mm. because they are only focusing on one aspect of what is a very complex phenomenon, which is our social and economic lives, right? Mm. And so when you start to consider policies that would take your GDP down by, you know, a point, two points, three points, 10 points, which is what, you know, projections have been looking like for the the, the middle quarter of this year, that is implying that you're reducing not just the, the capacity of individuals to spend, but the capacity of governments to spend on things that promote human welfare in Australia and worldwide. And that's really the main, I guess, component of the costs that are being paid by this lockdown policy is we are essentially just returning, we're regressing back to a, a lower GDP per capita state. And the reason this is important is because even in developed countries, it's not that somehow, you know, we arrived here by some good fortune and, you know, loving our environment and, you know, giving more attention to our children than other people or, or some sort of, you know, cultural thing. It's that GDP per capita, much as people don't like to think about it, but it's because it feels hard and, and monetary. But that GDP per capita is what has allowed us to invest in infrastructure, in education, in healthcare, in research and development across the span of different industries. And that's delivered for us the quality of life that we have now and the ability to even do what we have done in the context of this virus, which is have this massive national coordination, have you know health systems uh, ready to receive and, and able to you know staff those health systems with well-educated doctors and nurses and you know organized police and other enforcement mechanisms. This is all the fruit of high GDP per capita living. And when we decrease that, then that means there's going to be that much less government expenditure going forward for not just this year, but in future years on everything that I just talked about, which all feeds into human welfare. So if you believe you can actually tally up the decrease in human welfare that would come about via that decrease in GDP per capita, including government expenditure, as well as private expenditure, of course, mm. then you can, you can get a currency, again, figure that you can compare against the, the figure of you know, COVID-19 deaths averted and suffering averted. So that's the biggest part of the costs that we've been paying. But there are many other, you know, myriad different other costs, including, for example, the interruption of education for a whole generation of Australian school students. And of course, crowded out healthcare during this period when people have been afraid for a month or two to go to the hospital if they had stroke symptoms or heart attack symptoms because they were afraid they were going to catch COVID-19. People delaying their routine cancer screenings or other screenings. And also, you know, when you force people to be in their homes instead of being yes. out with other people, working in pubs, etc., you're having a big impact on mental health. You're having a potentially big impact on domestic violence. And we were starting to see those figures and suicides and possibly child abuse and molestation. So there, there are many other things that are byproducts of these lockdown restrictions, which I just do not think were being incorporated into those initial models. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Gigi Foster from the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. 
my understanding from what you said was that even if the models, the projected models, which I think some of them were released by the Doherty Institute, even if they were correct and we reached numbers like 50,000 deaths, 150,000 deaths, that it still might not be worth a severe lockdown, even if we attain those numbers. That's absolutely right. And, and another reason for that is because when you talk about severe lockdown, you're talking about the restrictions that came in place in Australia after our daily infection rates peaked. And so if you look at it from a logical empiricist standpoint, the lockdowns came after the peak infection. So it cannot be that the lockdowns caused infections to peak, right, to start going yeah. down. And that's not how it works, actually, in empirical reality, right? And so there are many, many restrictions and advice, encouragement that could have been put in place that did not involve that full lockdown. Indeed, I don't think that schools should have closed, but there were some sensible things. Certainly the hand washing, you know, and advice about where to sneeze and, and you know, stay home if you're sick, that's always yes. sensible and very much sensible in this case. I would never have stood against that. And yes. in fact, I did not ever say on Q&A that we should have always kept our borders open. I think mm. there was a, a reasonable case for the, the prevention of easy access into Australia from people who were coming from countries that were having a really extreme epidemic at that particular moment, you know, for a, a month period or whatever. Mm. Um, and I certainly think that the cruise ship situation could have been handled a bit better, right? So, but those are targeted measures. Those are measures mm. that, in my view, are are proportionate to the threat that we were facing. Whereas what we actually saw in terms of policy was, you know, some measures that looked pretty targeted. I mean, JobKeeper is pretty targeted to try to assuage the, the damage that we caused to ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm a big JobKeeper program supporter. But what we also saw were these blanket policies, which really were not proportionate to the threat at all, and indeed may have done very little to stem those death rates. I think there's a point in here that I'd be just interested in what you think about this. So Sweden went another way and resisted locking down. Um, they currently stand, the last time I looked at 46,814 cases and 4,795 deaths. And Anders Tegnell, the uh, leading epidemiologist who spearheaded their response, is now reportedly backtracking and stated that he'd do it differently. It's 43 deaths in 100,000. I mean, if you look at other just diseases like neurological diseases, something like um, motor neuron disease is like one in 100,000. Um, and this is in a country of 10.23 million people, whereas the COVID elite countries, like places like Taiwan, which has a population of 23.78 million, has 443 cases and seven deaths. But culturally, it's very different to Australia. So they had gone through SARS and MERS, and it is a I guess the public are used to restrictions. They're used to face masks. They're used to social distancing and using hand sanitizer. And I wonder with Australia, just because we're culturally different, the extreme measures were put in place because Australians wouldn't respond in the same way as the population from Taiwan. Well, I mean, I think we certainly didn't have the infrastructure in place, as you say, um, that Taiwan did because of their previous experience, experience with SARS and MERS. And we also perhaps didn't have as much population readiness. But to be honest, that sounds to me like a bit of a, of a patronizing kind of explanation. I mean, right. you know, the idea that we must close schools in order to frighten people, that's the opposite direction from what the government should have been doing. It should have been messaging to contain and reduce fear and mm. put this threat in proportion, mm. which is, by the way, what the Swedish government have done. 
done all throughout this crisis is they have provided messaging with perspective. They have provided reasoning behind their decisions, such as not to close schools because children are not a vector for this thing. And if you close schools, you put kids back in homes and make those adults then unable to go to work or be as productive when they are working. Mm. Now, I'm not going to claim that the Swedish people, and I'm sure that, that uh, Tegnell would agree with this, that they have done exactly the right thing. I mean, mm. I think he would, he would admit, in terms of the backtracking you're speaking of, I think that's mainly in regard to how the old people's homes were treated. And I think they realized that, okay, they, you know, if you send all the old people into one place and then you don't test really rigorously everyone who's in contact with that place, and you don't have you know, creative solutions that don't impinge on old people's freedoms, but do protect them, then you could very easily create a greenhouse kind of situation where if the virus gets in, it runs rampant. And that's very much what Sweden has seen, is, is the, the vast, vast majority, even dis- disproportionately more than in other countries, of their deaths have been in, in uh, old folks' homes. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that basic pattern of higher lethality of, for, of this virus in older people than in younger people is something we knew back in mid-March. We've known this for a long time, right? This virus is like a wolf. It, it preys on the most vulnerable in the society, the older people, the immunologically compromised people, just not to say that you cannot get it or you can't have severe symptoms at all if you're younger, but the risk is orders of magnitude less. And indeed, the case fatality rates you were quoting earlier, those are a bit on the high side compared to my most recent data. I would think based on what I've seen and and what I'm weighing up, probably a case fatality rate of about 0.4% is is roughly uh, where we're at now. But even then, remember the testing is, you know, incomplete in many countries. And so, you know, if you have a a large degree of asymptomatic cases, that pushes down your rate. So I actually think that, yes, okay, Sweden has lost more people. That's exactly what you'd expect you know, their, their policies uh, compared to others. But if you look across countries, indeed, the countries that really locked down heavily, in some cases, have had just as bad, if not worse, rates of infection. Those that didn't lock down, you know, Belgium is, is one example. And one of the, the benefits of having a broader suite of people who are infected with this thing in the first wave is that you've got more immunological defense against it then in future periods. And we don't know whether this is going to have a second wave. I mean, it's definitely been petering out in the countries that had the biggest hits, you know, the United States infection rates and, you know, uh, just throughout Europe, you've seen, I mean, Italy, you no longer see body bags on street in Milan, you know, you see people dancing in front of the the various tourist attractions there that have nobody coming in, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason is because this thing has followed what is the normal path for this kind of virus, if you look historically, in fact. So, you know, whether we have a second wave or not, I'm not sure. But if we do, or if we have anything that could be, uh, you know, similar to coronavirus that attacks again, Australia is going to be massively underprepared immunologically. And what have we paid? What's the price we've paid for that? Or, you know, maybe uh, maybe 10,000 fewer deaths. That's an upper estimate, I think, but maybe 10, you know, 20,000 if you want to be extremely, you know, conservative. For that, we have paid the price of a, you know, the, the worst recession we've seen yes. in, in most of our lifetimes. And, you know, many other, as I said before, crowded out healthcare, um, other costs related to mental illness, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. And, and really, there hasn't been a full accounting of that. You're quite right, because it's very difficult to do it, because, you know, a proper reckoning requires looking at all those different ways in which our policy actions have impacted negatively on welfare. And there's so many of them, and, they, and we interact in so many different interdependent ways with each other. It's very difficult to get precise estimates, but there are people who have attempted to get back of the envelope estimate. And when you look at those back of the envelope estimates, even if they are out by an order of magnitude, we still would have been better off not locking down. 
Do you feel the way that those remarks were perceived was that people felt that you were coming from some sort of extreme Darwinist or even eugenic type mm. of framework? You know, you're sort of saying, well, yeah. we can risk older adults, we can risk some immunocompromised people. From that model, I'm assuming that you'd make a different judgment around the way that lockdowns work for something like Spanish influenza, which predominantly affected 20 to 40 year olds. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very different disease, clearly. And and people draw parallels. But I've, as I've said to Norman Swan on his mm. program, I, I just don't think that's a fair analogy. No, it's no, it's not. No. So yes, I think we would have done, I hope that we would have done, uh, you know, different things than what I'm saying would be the ideal scenario here with COVID-19. Um, if we had been attacked by a Spanish flu, and we may end up in the future having uh, an attack from a, a bug that really attacks children, let's say, or, you know, people in the primes of their lives, and then the policy response should be different. I mean, it's the argument is simply make a proportionate response to the threat that you see and be cognizant of the costs of it. Now, in terms of public's response to my, my comments, yes, I did get a few, uh, you know, hate mail saying, go back to the U.S., the best country in the world, haha, and, mm. you know, you heartless. heartless. <laughs> yes, I think you were called heartless, weren't you? I remember that. Yeah, heart- oh, definitely. Heartless uh, was a big one. And, and, you know, you want to throw grandma and grandpa under the bus, you know, mm. absolutely not the case. Mm. <laughs> that, is, that is simply not what I'm arguing. Indeed, I think that if we had thought creatively about it, we might have been able to come up with policy solutions which would better protect our older people than the, you know, lockdowns for everybody. And I would also say, again, if, in fact, it were possible to get through this first wave with a higher level of immunological defense, amongst our younger people, then that defense can eventually flow through into more protection for those who are more compromised. That's what population level immunity does. It protects people who haven't been vaccinated or are more vulnerable to illness or, you know, in in any other way are more liable to pick this thing up and get really bad symptoms and and possibly die from it. So in fact, if you really wanted to protect the older people, perhaps you wouldn't have been not testing those who come into contact with them, but you would have set up creative ways so that they had little bubbles around them, maybe in their family homes. I'm sure it is not to lock down the entire society because that way we don't produce any kind of immunological defense. And then, you know, those, those older people are potentially much more vulnerable down the track. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Gigi Foster from the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. I guess we've got the example of the UK, you know, where they originally tried to do something like what you talked about on Q&A, where they had an optional lockdown for older people, uh, and now the UK is proportionally larger in terms of death rate than the US. So we look at those examples. But the other thing was psychologically, if you can imagine it, let's say that we tried to emulate Taiwan you know, which could be possible. I think Taiwan had the best policy around this. They're able to keep their economy open because their population, as I said, was almost militant in its understanding of how to do this. And then the death rate here went to 10 or 20,000. Psychologically, wouldn't the government then reverse on its decision to try and implement those changes and then go into a severe lockdown? And so then we'd have 10 to 20,000 deaths plus a severe lockdown. And so you've got the economic impact of the deaths plus a lockdown. Well, again, I feel that's somewhat of a dispiriting comment upon the level of education and sophistication of the Australian population and our politicians. I mean, are we living on this side of the enlightenment or not? Mm. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I know people that, you know, that fear, the strongest and oldest emotion of mankind is fear. And, and you, you know, start to see those numbers and it starts to have, uh, you know, and breakouts in communities and you have this feeling of the rice on the chessboard type of mm-hmm. idea. Yeah, yeah, look, I, I, mean, I, I agree that. fear is a, an incredibly powerful motivator and it does block out anything that isn't the feared object, right? Mm. And it, it's just not see those other things. And you also in Australia have a very strong sense of needing to be with the group, you mm. know, so there's a, there's a very strong vitriolic attack against people who are not sewing the line in relation to pretty much anything where there's a clear, correct opinion to have amongst powerful or, or the, you know, people who are being listened to, being, uh, you know, printed in the media. And so those two elements are, of course, definitely negative. But we see, for example, in Sweden, you don't see the level of fear of this thing that you do in other countries. Mm-hmm. And that is partly down to the government messaging, government mm-hmm. stepping up, realizing what you're saying, which is a learning from social science, fear is powerful, right? Okay, that means that we got to treat this thing, we got to treat the fear, treat the fear head on with our policy, with our messaging. And and that's something the Australian government just, you know, they gave up on around mid-March. I think right after the Imperial College London modeling came out, which was somewhere around, somewhere around mid-March, Australian politicians pretty much stopped trying to downplay at all the danger of this thing, which previously, I think our, our chief health officer somewhere before the uh, ICL modeling came out had said, look, this thing has usually got very mild symptoms. Correct. Mm. <laughs> Correct. Right. But nothing like that was repeated for, you know, afterwards because there was just no capacity for the politicians to get away with that anymore. And I think they were, they were swept along with the same fear that everybody else was partly because of this ICL modeling. And mm. Just, you know, the general lack of awareness being a, being a deer in the headlights. But I believe in people. I believe in our ability to learn more about our responses and our, our predilections and our, our weaknesses. Yeah. And one of our weaknesses is fear. And if we are putting people in charge of a whole country, those people should bloody well know that fear is extremely powerful and that it needs to be reined in in order to not run us over a cliff as a society. And that was something that the Swedish government knew and they acted on. And I believe that we should be able to do that as well in future here. Of course, you know, I would love to see the level of education, the level of economic literacy of Australians rise. It's one of the reasons I do many of the things I do in my job. I try to increase economic literacy and and try to provide people the kind of structure or framework for thinking about problems that can reduce their fear by giving them a sense of mastery over the problem of, you know, control over how to think about this problem, right? That, that does, that intellectual set of tools does provide a bit of an antidote to fear because then when something uncertain arises, you return to your roots, you return to that structure and you say, okay, how can I think about this new problem? And those are skills that, you know, I learned in school and in university and in graduate school as well, and just from my parents. And I think we don't have enough of that in this country. And that is another, you know, part of the fuel for the hysteria that we saw. So sure, I think we should continue to educate people. But do I think it would have been possible for the Australian government to to do more fear containment? Absolutely. And they simply just didn't come to the table. I've read that the evidence from the other pandemics of the 20th century and one of the early ones from the early 21st century, so 1957, 1968, I'm not sure about 2009, the swan flu, because I don't think it was that large. I think 35,000 people died in the US. But I'd read that the US states that locked down the earliest and the hardest recovered economically quicker than all other states. 
Mm. Yes, I mean, look, we've seen some historical evidence of, and, and I think that particular statement was, as I recall, that was from a study of the 1918 flu, not from the, the 1950s or 60s or whatever. Um, right. And the 1918 flu, of course, again, as we've spoken of, is a very different scenario. It's a very different type of bug. It was much yeah. more virulent, contagious. And of course, it occurred at a time when public hygiene was much worse than it is today. And if you look at just the, you know, the economic outcomes of, you know, whether or not a particular city was back to its normal GDP per capita, you know, two or three years later, it's a very different ballgame than if you look at all the crowded out health effects and the mental illness effects and all the other things that we've spoken about in the short to medium run, which are also costs of walking down. And those were not even being captured back then, because again, our, our reporting, our statistics were much shoddier than they are today. So again, I, I don't think that's a particularly appropriate analogy. And I would also say there's other work that has looked at, has tried, uh, you know, I think misguidedly to estimate the impact of recessions on death using around the time of the Great Depression. And yes. the authors, you know, trumpeted a finding that, well, you know, in the times that it was most recessionary, in fact, there were least deaths and, you know, that longevity was highest and all this. And the problem is there that, the impact of recessions on human welfare and longevity is a very long-run thing. It is not something where you can simply take slices so quickly in time, so soon after a recession and say, okay, well, now is the effect happening, right? This is a very long-term process, and it mainly flows through government expenditure. Yet again, I mean, going back to something we said a lot earlier at the start of this interview, um, government expenditure on services is a humongous input into human welfare and thriving and, and happiness and, and well-being. And so it's that reduction in government expenditure, which flows from a reduction in GDP overall, that then drives, you know, lesser outcomes on all sorts of different dimensions going forward. So I think that the methodology of those papers is, is inappropriate. Now, I will say that they point up something that's important to bear in mind. And in fact, it's very telling in terms of what we were speaking about earlier about trade-offs across different possible paths and policy paths is that in recessions, you do typically see that there are fewer people dying from road accidents, right? Yeah. Which is a big source of death in normal times. And a couple of other sources of deaths also decline. So slightly fewer people going to bars because they can't afford the liquor, right? <laughs> so yes. you get maybe or pub brawls, right? And these are sort of, you know, quirky little mm. anecdotal things. But to really face that reality, say, oh, in normal times, we are willing to take the risk of getting mm. into our cars. We are willing to buy the alcohol, even knowing that there's a risk we might punch out our friends, right? We are willing to take some risks. Yes. We know that those risks are there. We know they are. We don't yes. get apoplectic with fear about them. We step in our car and we take a drive and we go to work or we do whatever. We go on a bus. We breathe on people a bit yes. sometimes if we have to, right? Those things yes. happen and we take those risks. And so we are prepared to evidently live in a life that has some risk of death in normal times and we thrive yes. in those times. And so what has happened here in this situation has been an aberrant example of where our, our focus has become extremely narrow just on COVID-19 and we've just blown up totally out of proportion this one particular possible cause of death and it's caused us yes. to reevaluate all sorts of activities which we in normal times would consider perfectly acceptable. I think we do get caught up on the mortality rate, but there's also the unknown, which I've discussed with Professor Peter Doherty, that we still don't know what happens when people recover in terms of morbidity for the rest of the yeah, person's absolutely. life and also the economic impact of that. 
That's very true. Just like we were with SARS and MERS and all of the other new bugs, when they come mm. along, we don't really know what the impact is going to be. Mm. I mean, think about HIV, for example. You know, when yes. that first came on the scene in the mid-80s, good heavens. I mean, you see the effect in the short run. And before we had antiretroviral therapy, those effects were just hideous. And even when we started having antiretroviral therapy, we didn't know, you know, how many years can somebody live with this thing? And when are they going to start declining? How many years will they have to be on these drugs? I mean, there's so much that was unknown. And with any bug, those things are unknown. What we know is really only based on what we've seen before. And what we have generally seen before with these kinds of viruses is that they tend as they mutate and evolve to become slightly less virulent because that's in the interest of the virus, basically, right? If you make somebody really, 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 really sick and they have to go to bed and stay away from other people, then that virus isn't getting passed to as many other people. So this is one of the reasons for the success of the common cold, right? So in some sense, if we were to base our projections of the uh, the impacts of this thing in the longer run on what has happened in the past with viruses, we would probably be expecting lesser virulence as we go forward. We'd certainly also be expecting that humans will evolve ways to treat this thing better. So we saw early on the use of remdesivir and the use of proning and people trialing different treatment types. And We'll develop a, a stable of different ways to, to treat it depending on how old and whatnot. Yeah. I think there was just a, a lung transplant for a 20-something in, in the U.S., which went very well. And that shows you as well, by the way, the fact that that double lung transplant happened in somebody in her 20s, right, with no comorbidities, healthy otherwise, functional, etc., that shows you this is the first time we've done it. How many people have died from COVID-19? So many, and many of them from complete lung collapse. Well, why did none of them get the double lung transplant? It's not just that we hadn't thought of it. It's that mm. these people were on average older, mm. not as functional, with comorbid conditions, and it wasn't thought to be worth the resources to actually attempt a double lung transplant into those people, given the scarcity of healthy lungs. And I mean, I don't like to say it, but that is the sort of decision that gets made in hospitals every day with livers and hearts and all the other organs that are scarce in the world kidneys and everything else. And we would love to be living in a world which didn't have scarcity of those resources. But, you know, in Sweden, it's the older people who have actually been the most in favor of the Swedish government's response to this, yeah. funnily enough. Right? So if you want to say, well, people are we're sacrificing the old, you know, yes. well, you get to be 85. I mean, my own father is 89, is his way of saying it. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Helm in conversation with Professor Gigi Foster from the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School, here on 94.9 Main FM. I have read that we're heading for an economic cliff uh, poised with the end of job seeker and job keeper, somewhere around the end of September, if it all occurs on one day especially. What's the forecast with that? What will we see? We're already in a recession. Are we facing another Great Depression? Look, it's very possible, but the government has signaled, basically, from my understanding, that they are, while not prepared to extend those programs in their current form, considering how to continue them in a targeted way. So <laughs> sort of transitioning towards a, a half welfare type, uh, you know, tax and targeted transfer type system for particularly those industries that have been heavy hit. Because we do know that this particular recession so far has particularly hit certain industries, tourism, hospitality, the arts and entertainment, for example, would be, you know, higher education, some, some leading ones. And other industries like the grocery store industry have been doing fine so far, at least. Mm. And now if aggregate demand tanks further than it has now, then that could spread, you know, the, the pain even more broadly across, you know, all of the industries in Australia. 
And we certainly have to worry about the longer run incentives for investment and, and all sorts of stuff like that. But that's, that's you know, in the long run. In the medium term, yes, I think the government is likely to extend or modify and then extend JobKeeper in some way to workers in the industries that are particularly heavily affected. Now, I also don't think there's much that the government can do if they are prepared to keep borders closed for the foreseeable future, which it looks like they want to do. I don't think there's much they can do without just impossible push back from the populace to try to keep alive all of those hotels and tourism businesses that had been in operation previously for another three, six months, nine months, year, however long they're planning to keep the borders closed mm-hmm. because there's just not the customers. I mean, it would be incredibly expensive. Tourism is a huge industry in Australia. And so I really don't know what the government's plan is for doing that, but I cannot imagine that we're not going to see a culling or you know, what we call in economics in a typical recession, we'd call it a creative destruction. I think this is more of an unfortunate destruction. I was interested in your comments about basic universal income. In this series, I spoke to um, Joe Huston, who is the CFO for Give Directly, a charity which is one of the effective altruism charities promoted by um, the Life You Can Save, Peter Singer's organisation. I don't know if you're aware of this organisation, but they offer a version of basic universal income in places like Uganda. And now since the beginning of COVID-19, they've been trialling it in the United States. Basic universal income has been supported by a diverse range of characters, everyone from Bertrand Russell to President Richard Nixon. And I had wondered whether, if we're facing at a global level economic crisis, that I thought this was the solution, that this would be the future for the population because we would have eventually have a, a, essentially an entire underclass of people who would be unemployable because the jobs wouldn't be there or they'd been taken over by AI. There, there are many things to say about universal basic income and I completely yes. support the idea of putting in place that kind of system in developing country contexts where you have things like, you know, children who are malnourished, stunted, uh, you know, unable to to actually go to school because they're too hungry. This is not an okay outcome. And you need to just provide money for those, those sorts of huge, massive, acute human welfare problems. Mm. Um, And and there have been studies of UBI in those sorts of contexts, you know, Mm. in in Indian villages or or wherever, and they, that does very well. So, Mm. you know, I think that's, actually a very good approach and it would be something that the you know the IMF and the World Bank would do well to to take note of you know you don't have to design necessarily only these complicated microfinance programs or you know women empowerment programs you can also just give people money that's another way to go you know at least for the short run now one of the problems with aid in general and it's always been a problem is that in many countries where you you know you see a great deal of human misery one of the big problems is that the political system is corrupt, mm. right? And it's corrupt in a big way, in a way that's really fleecing the population, oftentimes because it's, it's latched on to some sort of, a, of an extractive industry, you know, a mining kind of industry or, yes. or you know, other kinds of natural resource extraction. And there's this thing called the Dutch disease, which you've probably read about, which, you know, essentially predicts that, people, that the countries which are reliant heavily on that sort of natural extraction will tend to uh, end up with this kind of corrupt system. And the problem then is if you give aid to people in those countries, right, first of all, the corrupt politicians will find some way of taxing that out. So they will, they will set up a way to get into that money. So if you just helicopter drop cash to people in 
you know, some some poor African country. Yes. Um, and the, the, the politicians will work out that that's where the money is and they'll figure out a way because they're pretty creative, just like mm. every person is, right? They'll figure out a way to get hold of that and, they, and then the actual benefit to the people you really want to help will be lower, okay? Mm. That's problem one. Problem two is that in history, what we've seen is that the way in which corrupt regimes finish the way in which you know an end comes to them is typically through revolt of the population because the population won't have it anymore. Now, if you appease a population that is under the thumb of a corrupt regime by giving them food, by giving them money, by giving them things that reduce their desperation, then the argument is, and I know this sounds like an extreme and, 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 and cruel sort of argument, but I'm just being informed by history. The argument goes that you are taking away some of the fuel that is required to actually depose those regimes from within. So, it, the, so aid is not a simple matter. Uh, and, I, and I completely agree that right now, what we're seeing in the yeah. developing world is absolutely catastrophic. Catastrophic, and and Australia's indifference to that, seeming indifference based on the lack of coverage of this in, in you know headlines and newspapers and media in Australia is is appalling, frankly. But because in normal times, you know, we do actually pay attention to whether there's suffering, and there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, dying from the very fact that we have implemented these draconian economic lockdowns in the developed world. And the reason is because our economies are so globally interconnected, and when we stop demanding things. That means that the demand for raw materials and intermediate products from our traders, trading nations overseas, including the developing world, has gone down. And that means the destruction of jobs. It means literally more people starving. And so that is a big problem right now. And so, you know, we had um, Stephanie Schur from the University of Sydney on our program, The Economist, a few weeks back, speaking of exactly this problem and how dire the, the call is now to spend money and food and, and assistance to these people in order to prevent massive human tragedy. But to be honest, I don't have a lot of hope about that. I hope that the Give Directly people are paying attention to that. I think that's where the main focus needs to be right now, not in Australia, but in the developing world. I mean, the, the Indian situation is just beyond the pale. It's horrible. And, and it's not going to come back anytime soon. I mean, we need to get our economies back on track and connected again with the rest of the world. We need to stop being afraid of the rest of the world in order to be able to help the rest of the world. Because as you know, as I say, as an economist, trade is the best aid. And we're not trading at the moment much, not as much as we were. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Gigi Foster from the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. You've said that we will not experience a V-shaped recovery. What sort no, of recovery I... will we experience? Well, I mean, I hope... Uh... I hope it's it's more like, you know, a, a you, I suppose, right? But I don't have a lot of confidence in that. The, the, the reason why you don't see V-shaped recoveries, just so you're, you're just, you know, sort of get the idea behind this, is that when you have a recession, when you have a, a pullback in economic activity, often you have a destruction of links between trading partners. And I don't just mean nations, but those as well. But employers and employees, upstream and downstream players in an industry, and when those links get destroyed, that means that in order to ramp up production again, that is to, to start increasing the growth of GDP, you actually have to find new trading partners. And that takes a lot of time and effort and energy. 
And that process then of finding the new trading partners is something that prevents you from jumping right back on the, the truck, right? And just, oh, okay, well, we'll just push this button and the economy starts going again. That's, that's mm -hmm. not how it works. And we saw this in the pattern of GDP per capita coming out of the, uh, the former Soviet Union. So when the FSR fell, you know, in 91 or whatever it was, that was a moment when basically all of the interconnections between businesses and companies and, and people and, you know, people and people all got pretty much destroyed at the push of a button, right? Mm -hmm. No longer was Ukraine making, you know, left galoshes and, you know, Kyrgyzstan making right galoshes and they were put together in a bridge in Russia. You know, that wasn't how it was going to work anymore, right? So all these links were just destroyed. And then you had this massive tank in GDP. And it took a very long time for that to recover. I was there in Moscow in 95, and it was nowhere like recovered, right? And that was four years after the fall. Yeah. So it wasn't really until, you know, later in that decade that you started to see some good signs of, okay, we've, you know, we've got things back on track again. And it's because it just takes time to find those new partners and work out, is this going to work? You know, what's the demand going to be like for this product? And I have to customize this input for your new output, which was not like the output that I was making the input for before for, you know, it's a time consuming process. So that's why we don't expect V-shaped recoveries. Now, I will say that in Australia, the JobKeeper program did push against that problem. That's one of the reasons I like it is, as the name suggests, kept workers together with their employers for a period of time, at least as long as this program lasts. And that means that there won't need to be that search again for workers when we come out the other side, if in fact, we you know, manage to keep those people together. So that is a positive aspect of the JobKeeper program and something I think would be wise to replicate in, in future situations where we are trying to limit economic damage from some sort of external shock and we want to be able to come out as quickly as possible. That said, as I've said before, the, the tourism industry, the hospitality industry, mm. the higher education industry, they're all going to contract. And there are going to be factors of production that are essentially put back into that primordial soup of uh, inputs waiting for matching. Then that matching process, matching up the inputs again, people to companies, to restaurants, to you know, capital goods, that matching process takes a while. So that's what we're going to have to work through before we get to the other side of this recession. Hypothetically speaking, let's say a, a second wave does emerge and to whatever degree its significance and the decision then that's made by state and federal government is to lock down and lock down fairly severely. I've had this question for a while actually preceding COVID-19, which was what percentage of the population would have to stop working and for how long before a country like Australia faces almost complete economic collapse? Hmm. Yeah, look, it's a good question. It's not really something that, you know, we've got good historical data to draw on, I suppose. We've certainly seen what the unemployment rates are in the, the biggest depression times and economic crises of the, the recorded history that we've got in, in the world. And I suppose one could appeal to that. But on the other hand, those were times of, you know, when governments were not as well off, as rich, when the infrastructure wasn't as developed and, the, and of course, global trade was not as developed as it is now. So, you know, I'm not sure that it's that relevant, really. But certainly economists start worrying a lot when the unemployment rate gets above 6 or 7%. And then we basically think, okay, we're in uncharted waters if it goes above maybe 15%, right? So unemployment is, of course, you know, the, the notion, I mean, people only get counted as unemployed if they say they're in the labor force, so they're looking for a job and they cannot find one. Now, I think what you're speaking of is really a kind of amalgamation of the unemployed and the not in the labor force, right? 
So you're saying if people were just sitting at home, not really looking for a job, but just getting money, you know, from the government via JobKeeper or, or, or some other program, UBI, who knows what, then how much of that could we withstand as a country? Well, we've seen what that's like before uh, women came into the labor force in droves, like right after the Second World War, right? It was very normal for there to be a single breadwinner in a family, you know, the man, typically in a mixed gender household, which was the overweening popular type, right after the Second World War and before the, the women's liberation movement. And one of the things that propped up our, our economy in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was the mass entry of women into the labor force. So we've seen that it is possible to run a country with maybe not half, but close to that, of the able-bodied adult population not working in paid labor, right? Because that's what we saw after the Second World War. And if you want to consider it that way, then you want to think about a completely different question, which is what is the set of institutions, and including, for example, minimum wage laws and you know, award rates and other kinds of protections that would need to be put in place in order to support a return to a scenario in which basically we were, were assuming that there'd be maybe 1.1 breadwinners per household, let's say. Now, then you also have a whole suite of cultural and, and sociological issues to confront, right? Because now we've been schooling everybody in the last 20, 30 years that we want everyone to have an opportunity to be part of the labor market, to, to have a career uh, that's paid, paid labor career. And if you then say, oh, sorry, no, actually, we're going to try to structure a society whereby only one in two people needs to work. Well, that implies a radically different attitude towards what is possible. Right. And then what do you tell to the year 12 boys and girls? OK, well, when you partner, just make sure that you find somebody who wants to do the thing that you don't want to do, whether it's be in the labor market or stay home and do unpaid labor. I mean, maybe we want that. But but these are the kinds of discussions that would need to be had. And I'm not sure that Australia is really ready for those kinds of discussions. And I'm I'm not sure necessarily that it's a good thing for the society to move back to where its whole institutional framework is based around the idea that only half the people should be working. I mean, are we facing generational unemployment for young people? We certainly know that young people who enter a labor market during recession face years of scarring afterwards. That's been proven in, uh, again in the empirical literature. And yeah, I worry about that. I mean, I have two children who are on the brink of going into the labor market themselves and you know, they're 20 and 17. And I absolutely worry they will not find a job that's as well suited to their skills and therefore not develop the kinds of experience. I mean, because these things accumulate, right? I mean, when you enter the labor market at say 21, the first match you make is very important. And every match you make to the, to the labor market is important in, in the kind of experience that you draw and the kind of connections that you make and how you feel about yourself, your own confidence, how much money you're able to make. And all of these things, you know, wages are very sticky across the life cycle as well. So when you start out at a particular salary, you typically just move up incrementally from that salary, which is one of the reasons why if you don't ask for a really good starting wage, you're going to be feeling the pain of that for a decade to come, right? Because you typically get increments on your existing starting salary. So for all sorts of reasons, yes, I, I worry very much about the young people um, entering the job market in the next year to three years. Professor Foster, thanks for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. That was very informative. Thank you. So there it was, the interview with Professor Gigi Foster. A very refreshing or bracing interview, depending on where you stand. 
and uh, mm. certainly plenty of things to talk about there, Mark. One of the things uh, that I was interested in was her response to you saying, you said, would you think that if we reach numbers like 50,000 to 150,000 deaths, that it still might not be worth a severe lockdown? And she seemed to answer that, yes, it still might not be worth a severe lockdown. Yes, that was the same approach that she took when she was on Q&A. Right. Um, and we're not talking about England, not talking about the States. We're talking about here in Australia. I just wonder how many yes. deaths would it take to think that a severe lockdown was worthwhile? Would it be 200,000? Would it be a quarter of a million? I still feel as though the issue was the modelling that was released by the Doherty Institute into what the potential was for COVID-19 had the severe lockdowns not taken place and international borders closing and state borders closing. I do understand the issue of a statistical life, but I come back to the psychology of it as well, that if you can't provide an aggregate number in terms of how this would comparably affect the population in the future in terms of the way that the economic fallout would affect, say, Medicare, people trying to access elective surgery and things like that, I think the problem is it's very difficult for people to imagine what the future consequences may be. As I said at the start, before we play the interview, the last week has seen some dramatic developments in the COVID-19 saga, especially in Melbourne. Mark, what are your thoughts about how it's panned out here in Victoria? I think essentially when I spoke to Peter Doherty, the modelling and the ideas that were put forward by the Doherty Institute in terms of the recommendations in terms of uh, lockdowns, state border closures, things like that were correct. Um, we can look to Sweden, but uh, Sweden has a population of approximately 10 million and we've had over 5,000 deaths and over 65,000 infected. That's five times the total of its Nordic neighbours. I mean, the idea from Sweden was that it would protect itself in terms of its economy by staying open, but it's pretty much on track to experience the same decreases in GDP as its Nordic neighbours with severe lockdowns and not experiencing the death rates and the infection rates. I think I've made it clear, and I think I made it clear in both interviews, whether Doherty and also Foster, that we could possibly have done something where we kept the economy open and we didn't have the severe lockdowns, but we would have to emulate a country. I think the best case scenario is that we emulate a country like Taiwan. And my point was I don't know whether Australia could do that because I don't think we're culturally the same as Taiwan. We haven't had the same experiences with SARS and MERS. We're not a homogenous culture, I don't think. I think that was one part of the problem in Sweden as well, is that aside from the nursing home issues, they also didn't take into account migrant populations which had different cultural norms in relation to social distancing and things like that. The Syrian Christians were disproportionately affected. Well, we made the same mistake here in Victoria with the quarantine hotels. Well, yeah, to some extent. So, I mean... If we wanted to open it up, the best case scenario would be to do it the way that Taiwan has done it, which has recorded, uh, what is it, 451 cases and seven deaths in a population of 23 million people. But I don't think we could do that in Australia. The problem is, and as you know, there's plenty of pundits in the media, and I would say this, that after the recent events in Melbourne 
and in Victoria that Gigi Foster is seeming even more like an outlier of opinion as people are falling in behind the government in cracking down. Even the main feature writers of The Australian, who were dissenters at the start, are falling into line to say that we have no choice but to lock down severely and to control COVID-19. But nevertheless, as I've said a number of times, we still don't know what's going to happen in the long term. For instance, they're still thinking that you can clamp down on the virus with the a severe lockdown, but sooner or later you have to lift the restrictions and then there's always a possibility of another spike. And it seems that Sweden, they're maintaining that their position was still correct. They made a mistake with the elderly people's homes and things like that and they acknowledge that. And as you say, with other mistakes they've made, but they still maintain that we have no choice but to allow a certain number of people to be infected. Now, we're not talking about herd immunity, Mm. but while we clamp down and, and we have a very small proportion of people who have been affected by it, then there's always the chance that it will take off again. Yeah, well, I think the the other option that could be pursued, I mean, Sweden is incredibly egalitarian. And I think Rainer, the epidemiologist, Professor Rainer McIntyre, who's at UNSW with uh, JJ Foster, I mean, she has talked about the idea that we adopt some of those protocols from places that are considered COVID elite, like Taiwan. You know, why isn't it mandatory to wear face masks out in public? hand sanitising, they're taking on an almost military protocol around it for people. If you want to have that openness and keep the economy open and keep social and public life open to some extent, you've got to take on the responsibilities of that. It's interesting that Sweden couldn't do that as well, couldn't take on some of the things that Taiwan took on. And that's the key cultural difference. Well, one of the things to explain the reason why people didn't start wearing masks early on, because we were advised not to wear masks. Norman Swan, Mm. you know, the guru of ABC, he said they weren't necessary. Mm. We didn't even have enough masks. Yes, that's because of the recommendations that were put out by WHO. But this week, scientists have written a collective letter to the World Health Organization, and I think they're going to have to reverse that and recognize that it wasn't just large droplets, it was actually aerosol particles that could stay in the air for up to four hours. So, I mean, part of the thing around wearing masks is not to protect yourself, it's to protect other people. Yeah, let's look at the central Victorian situation. We Mm. have no cases here in Castlemaine, we've got a handful a handful in central Victoria, what's the point Mm. of people wearing masks if they're designed to protect other people from it when it's not here? Mm. Well, you could ask the same question in Taiwan, couldn't you? You could say, what's the point of them wearing masks and hand sanitising when they've got 451 cases with the majority of them recovered and seven deaths amongst 23 million people? The reason that they do that is because they take the situation seriously. And I think the thing around us keeping this down and pushing the numbers below the curve is that we're buying ourselves time until we get a vaccine that has some sort of efficacy. So the point is that you're trying to hold off as long as you can until, I suppose, the medical science catches up. The problem is that, really, we have no choice other than to trust the professionals, the specialists, the scientists, 
the epidemiologists. It's one of those things that opinions aren't very much help here. I don't know whether it counts for much in the broader spectrum. Yeah, well, I think that when it comes down to it, I mean, you have right opinion and then you have right knowledge. Like I could just happen to have the right opinion with the bits and pieces of knowledge that I have. But some people, obviously, because they spend their entire life studying epidemiology or immunology, they have right knowledge as well to go with right opinion. And so, like if anything in these podcasts we get wrong, feel free to point it out and and Mm. let us know. It's a complicated and complex situation. The upshot is in this globalised economy, it doesn't matter how you approach this particular problem, all countries, their economies are so intertwined that the fallout's going to be bad for every country, regardless of how many deaths they've had. All right, well, I certainly really enjoyed the interview with Professor Gigi Foster. And next week, we're going to have another interview that is going to stimulate our listeners when you interviewed Dr. Anthony Dillon. Tell me about Dr. Anthony Dillon. Dr. Anthony Dillon is a postdoctoral research fellow at ACU, and he identifies as a part Aboriginal Australian. That is the way that Anthony describes himself. Is it? He uses that term, yes. part Indigenous. I think so, yes. And so um, his teaching and research interests include conceptualizations of mental health, uh, statistics, psychometrics, applied psychology, and he has a focus on Indigenous health as well. And he is critical of the Black Lives Matters movement. Exactly. Wow. So that will be very interesting. His political affiliations would be very much in line with Jacinta Price. Conservative, I think you would say. All right. Well, join us next week here on Deep Trouble when Dr. Mark Halloran interviews Dr. Anthony Dillon. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. The Deep Trouble podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at troublemag.com. Thanks for listening.